Blog Talk Radio.
We're going to begin our program with introducing our political panelists and analysts, followed by a discussion on what's going on in your world and the community, and the community, and then we will speak on today's things, addressing various important articles. So that's the line of our agenda today. So at this time, you know how we do it. We always get started with our party by introducing our political analysts and panelists for today's program. We first will start off with Brother Anthony, and we would like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Hey, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, uh, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony. Following Brother Anthony, we will now bring in Brother Haki. We would like to welcome Brother Haki to Africa on the move. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kumafumishoki, and of course, you know, my thing is all about institution building. But one of the things that, you know, I find ironic, you know, one of the things that mainstream media refuses to talk about is the role of unemployment, particularly in the age of COVID-19. So one of the things that I want to talk about real briefly is our relationship between capitalism and um, unemployment. Now, check this out. Now, COVID-19 has exposed the very real <coughs> limitation of capitalism. A system predicated on private control of the economy reveals the aptitude of such a system that elevates the interest of the wealthy, even when the wealthy's interest conflicts with the needs of an entire nation. One could conclude such economic arrangements, if understood by working people, would greatly contribute to the disenfranchisement or despair leading to the dismantling of capitalism. So how does the capitalist influence sustain such a feat where the majority of people in the world are marginalized treated as undeserving serfs, <clears throat> deserving of abuse and humiliation. Historically, capitalism has been very effective convincing working people their interest lies in the heart of capitalist policy. When this platitude is to be false, capitalists adjusted the tactics in the 30s and 60s by expanding access to money by supporting policies that increased jobs, elevated wages, increased social safety net. Even when this strategy, <clears throat> even with this, even with the strategy, Capitalists understood these tactics would not be sustainable forever, and as such, a long-term strategy was needed to achieve its objective in pacifying the masses of people. Education would play a vital part in terms of achieving that. Now, history would be, <clears throat> in terms of education, history would be distorted, and the historical nature of capitalism inequality would be minimized or totally avoided in academia or media. Now, long before the Chicago School of Economics dishonest framing of capitalism, Early predecessors taunted the greatness of capitalism even in the face of grinding poverty and immaculate wealth for the wealthy. Now, the one benefit of capitalist strategy was the evolution of the middle class, situated between the wealthy and the impoverished masses, serving as a buffer for wealthy interest. Now, the education strategic use would have to utilize cunning and guile to, to present capitalism as the only viable system in human history. In order to accomplish this feat, economic concepts would be redefined and economic efficiency would be defined as exclusive monetary benefits for the wealthy, while addressing poverty will be seen as inefficient. And consequently, historically speaking, when the Employment Act of 1946 was authorized by Congress, many Republicans opposed the measure, citing responsibility for government cutting, government maintaining a high level of unemployment, employment, 
and price stability were too vague. In other words, such assurances conflicted with profit motives and therefore inefficient. In response to the Employment Act of 1946, the Congress passed the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Bill in 1978. The act sought to resolve the, the unemployment issues by placing the responsibility of any unemployment to the private sector, not the government. The result is, as you would expect, not a single uh, goal to address unemployment was, impl- was implemented. Little, little wonder why Bernie Sanders and AOC <clears throat> attempt to establish a Green Deal has been ostracized by both Republicans and Democrats. The Green New Deal seeks to redistribute the wealth, create a vibrant economy while while stimulating demand, in other words, putting money in the pockets of people so they can buy things. Now, unfortunately, the Green Deal was seen as inefficient because any unemployment would reduce profits, the most inefficient strategy devised according to capitalists. Now, historically, the first order of education was to reinterpret full employment. Full employment, according to capitalists, would be the number of people employable that does not impede profits. Too many employees reduces productivity and the possibility of maximum exploitation of labor. In other words, creating conditions to ensure one worker does the job of multiple workers ensures big profits. Employment additional workers would undermine profits. Additionally, employment should only be undertaken as long as the worker production ratio is maintained. Working people, with the exception of unions, will be disempowered to fight back, and as a consequence, signal wealthy elites the strategy of productivity was successful based upon a lack of sustained resistance from workers. Now, in hindsight, it's easy to see the wealth is indifference to working people. If, history, if historically this is the case, why would we believe that in the age of COVID-19, the plight of poor people would resonate with the capitalist class? Currently, Congress has refused to continue <clears throat> the stimulus for the, for the 40 million who lost their jobs. While this may be seen as a tragedy for many, perhaps capitalists see it as business as usual. Now, the irony is, by the African, in addition to the unemployment situation, you have a situation where uh, the federal government has fundamentally reduced the kind of uh, payments to the, to the states. So historically, you had uh, <clears throat> reserve revenue sharing, in which the government would make sure the states had the money they needed in terms of operating. They later, in 1971, during the uh, reign of Nixon, they actually reduced that and start and start implement, implementing block grants. So block grants essentially was these uh, reduced payments and is, and <clears throat> you know to states. Uh, and these reduced payments make it very impossible for the states to provide the kind of social safety net that the people need, particularly in the age of high unemployment. So the mere fact that you got this in, in, in this, 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 this high unemployment, on the one hand, and on the other hand, you got the situation where governments are unable to actually uh, uh, protect the citizens in terms of the, 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 the hardships of unemployment uh, speaks volumes in terms of the hardships that uh, eventually will befall uh, lots and lots of people in the society. For the African community who is disproportionately unemployed, it hits, it hits home the hardest. And so, therefore, the question becomes, what are we going to do in the context of this mass unemployment that's, that's sweeping the nation? So institutions are extremely important. So without the institutions, the question is, what are we going to do? It becomes very, very difficult to answer. So I encourage people to build institutions because now is the time to do that because the moment that the, that the situation hits, then it becomes virtually impossible in terms of overcoming, you know, this kind of those kind of uh, this kind of situation. So I encourage people to build those institutions because without those institutions, there's no way conceivable to address the issue in terms of high unemployment and the kind of devastation, you know, in its wake. So I encourage people to build those institutions because it's key to our longevity in the society. And Brother Africa, I want to again thank you for having me. Thank you, Brother Aki. We now move on to Brother Moses. We'd like to welcome him to Africa on the move. Welcome, Brother Moses. 
Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. Uh, my name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. We're always honored to have you, Brother Moses. At this point in time, we're going to do a quick um, cultural break, and when we come back, we're going to start a segment with our panelists and analysts, so what's going on in our world and community. And we would like to invite you to call in and share with us what's going on in your world and community by dialing 323-679-0841. We're going to pause for this call. We'll be right back. Identity of an African 
you like to welcome everyone back to Africa on the Move. You listen, Brother Africa. I'm in the seat. I'll take the heat. And if I define it, we'll stand behind it. So right now we're going to our first segment, What's Going On In Your World and the Community. Again, we invite you to call in and share with us what's going on in your world and community. But to get us to get started, we'll go with Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, talk to the people. What's going on in your world and the community? Okay, uh, several things. Uh, to start with, uh, tomorrow marks the uh, 133rd anniversary of the de- birth of Marcus Garvey. And uh, we should remember, remember uh, his contribution uh, to the African liberation struggle and the struggle to achieve pan-Africanism. And uh, that's why tomorrow is of a special significance. And there have been commemorations uh, going on uh, in, in, in various parts of the diaspora, uh, you know, this past weekend. Also, uh, Joe, Joe Biden uh, selected his running mate, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, you know, the uh, currently uh, the, the U.S. senator out of uh, California. And um, uh, this should uh, uh, raise a lot of concern, uh, you know, among people, not only because of her past policies while she was attorney general in California, but also the fact that she's a lifelong supporter of Zionism. And uh, that was uh, indicated in a speech she delivered before uh, APEC in 2017. So, uh, you know, in terms of, um, you know, the presidential election, uh, none of the candidates, as uh, we've indicated repeatedly on this program, uh, half the interests of the masses of Africans at heart, or other oppressed people. So, uh, so uh, you know, uh, be uh, be very aware as the intensification, uh, uh, as the contradictions intensify. Also, uh, Trump is trying to uh, gut the funding for the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, one way, in addition to cutting funding, uh, the Postmaster General has no, uh, the, uh, is a friend of Trump's and has no experience with the Postal Service at any level. So, uh, so people need to be very aware of what's going on in the, uh, you know, in their surroundings. All right, thank you, Brother Anthony. We'll make a transition. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world and the community? Yeah, yeah Brother Africa. You know, I, I had an opportunity, you know, earlier this week uh, to talk to a young brother who was asking me about uh, my view in terms of totalitarianism. And my position was that uh, totalitarianism is very much a very real concern in society and understanding the economic reality of what's going on. And we certainly have to be very, very concerned about that. Well, his, the young brother's position was that he didn't think it could happen in the United States. And I asked him why would he say that. And uh, while well, he wasn't quite sure in terms of why, but he felt his gut. 
that somehow the totalitarianism is something that happens in other places in the United States. So anything happens, you know, with that on my mind, I just I just, I just thought about totalitarianism, and so I wrote this piece, right? Now, totalitarianism is defined as a system of government that is centralized and dictatorial and requires complete subservience to the state. Despite the very concise definition of many take the position that American exceptionalism will preclude any possibility of totalitarianism ever existing on U.S. soil. Such analysis comes from a flawed understanding of U.S. history or the intersection between U.S. financial institutions and politics. In order to appreciate the strain of totalitarianism in U.S. society, a cursory glance at U.S. financial institutions is key, starting with the Bank of the U.S. established in 1791. It should be pointed out that the level of mistrust associated with banks. Now, previous to the excuse me, exploitation of people by English banks, the colonial welfare class was quite aware of centralized control of finances and its corrupting influences. Powerful welfare interests, even though quietly aware, eventually uh, prevailed. Ultimately, banks achieved legitimacy, ultimately leading to established central banks. Now, central banks, as they currently exist, exert tremendous amount of influence over states' financial affairs. Central banks do not just oversee monetary policy or money supply or exchange rates, but serves as a vehicle to justify states' policy like inflation, consumption, growth, and banking reserves. The simplest way to understand central bank role is to understand central banks serve as a smokescreen for Western manipulation of both money and draconian policies that serve to exploit nations' resources. While this exploitation has largely focused on developing nations, that exploitation, largely due to financial crisis of its own making, has extended to include NATO states like Greece, Italy, and Spain, to name a few. Interestingly enough, the pain inflicted by central banks' own states tends to be unequal. Both Greece and Italy were excoriated by Western leaders for mismanaging their economies. But the U.S., who constantly runs deficits in both trade and current account balances, is treated much differently. Instead of being penalized, central banks continue to hold large reserves of dollars despite the declining value of dollars. Essentially, central banks are propping up the dollar even when the dollar's decline is detrimental to global trade and or finance. Now, the deleterious, excuse me, deleterious effect of central bank policy on domestic economies cannot be understated. In the U.S., the ever-increasing number of dollars in circulation has greatly impacted employment, business expansion, and investments. Uh, prominently impacting working poor people, domestic policy in the U.S. is often viewed with disdain, a dystopia of sort in which many working people are all too aware under the, under the current economic arrangements their lives don't value very much. The welfare league's response is not to change course of the equitable system, but double down and increase the level of oppression directed at discontent. How is this oppression maintained? So in one way, to strengthen the police by ensuring the qualified immunity is not overturned, preceded by corporate investments of $115 billion per year to police, while local governments finance police by providing for every, one, for every $3 spent, $1 goes toward, goes toward the police. Now, despite these expenditures, the level of discontent grows among the masses of people. Now, given this reality, how will the plutocrats maintain control? What level of violence are they willing to commit against the working poor? Will principles of law constrain unlawful acts like extrajudicial killings of part police or kidnapping bro- pro- protesters in broad daylight? His- history suggests laws would not be an impediment to wealthy elite. Laws of constitutional rights would simply be cease to exist or be enforced. And here are a few examples. From 1967 to 1971, the FBI kept files on over 100,000 subversives. Subversives were people who questioned the direction of the country. 
Surveillance of references would eventually expand internationally, and everyone who opposed U.S. aggression on pluralism will be labeled subversive and placed in files. Ironically, the surveillance program at that time was called the Main Corps, and it served as the president for today's Five Eyes program. And the Five Eyes program consists of the U.K., U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. The objective of these states is to spy on the world, identify terrorists. They're no longer subversives. They're now terrorists. Uh, to identify these individuals and to share files among themselves. History is so exacting in terms of this propensity, in terms of you know, perpetuation of injustice when states work together. Now, if illegal spying is not an indication of totalitarian strain, Trump plans for mass internment or mass locking up American citizens. Currently, the U.S. has 800 internment centers established. Legitimacy of these detention centers came into being as a result of a political policy. First, Rex 84 was established in 1984 to detain large number of immigrants who seek to cross U.S. borders. Policy later changed for the purpose of interning U.S. citizens in the event of a national emergency determined by the president or okayed by the U.S. Attorney General. Rex 84 was preceded by the National Defense Officer Act, which origins goes back to 1961, to give you some indication in terms of how far back this reasoning goes, but were amended in 2011 by Congress. And the National Defense Authorization Act use of uh, detainment centers in the U.S. Uh, was signed into law in 2011 by President Barack Obama. Now, <clears throat> there's, there's no doubt uh, why totalitarianism is headed this way. The only question is what level of organization exists in the community to contend with the forces of totalitarianism. Without some adequate um, uh, safeguards in place in terms of dealing with this, this, this threat of totalitarianism, the bottom line is that when we look at places like um, uh, uh, Mussolini's Italy or Nazi or uh, uh, Hitler's Germany, and when we look at the places like that, and we look in terms of the kind of um, ill treat, maltreatment that the people received, the kind of injustice, the kind of torture, the kind of killings that took place, we can we can certainly expect that similar kinds of things will happen in America, and certainly this American conceptualism that people believe it exists will have no play whatsoever in terms of uh, preventing such atrocities from taking place. So this is the nature in terms of totalitarianism, and U.S. is definitely not exempt from the pressures of totalitarianism. In fact, we're heading in that direction, and we have to understand that it's a cold reality of it all. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. Um, it's been an interesting week, I think. Um, um, definitely the, the Kamala Harris appointment of uh, to the vice presidential candidacy, it's been a big event. Uh, um, I agree with uh, Brother Anthony. You know, we, you know, she's she's not going to be the answer, uh, um, and um, we have to be aware of her, her on the on the um, Zionism, etc. Um, meanwhile, Trump is still being Trump, and uh, Trying to stop the the mail from going out, trying to uh, impede the electoral process. Um, which, by the way, on on uh, August 28th, uh, the National Action Network will be demonstrating in D.C. for for um, get your knees off our back and uh, and supporting the, the postal workers and the the uh, equal the Voting Rights Act, etc. Uh, those are two big things that are coming up. Uh, I, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. 
Saggy Brother Moses. You're listening to Africa on the Moon. We're dealing with what's going on in your world community. What we're going to do, again, we'd like to hear from you. Call in. When we come back, we will continue these discussions, and we'd like to ask our panelists some interesting questions based upon some of the things that are going on in that world. We're going to go back and take our rubbish and cultural break, and when we come back, we'll continue down the road of what's going on in your world and the community. You listen to Brother Africa on Africa on the Moon.
so vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity. Human beings, human love, on a spiritual tip, so vast, so great, the African embrace, live beyond, love beyond. Your skin to where you belong. Mother gave birth to everyone on earth. So we echo her call. 
tall. Cause we're hip to the world, so we create black pearls. Everyone can wear, everyone can share. We can't live in despair, so we shine everywhere. On and on. On and on. On and on. Back to Africa on the move. We're dealing with what's going on in our world, in your world, in the community, with our panelists and analysts. Before we took our revolutionary cultural break, Brother Anthony, you were discussing one of the things that was going on in your world is selection of Pamela Harris with Joe Biden. Now, I'd like to just raise this, 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 this narrative with you and get. Your response as well as the rest of the panel's response. You know, one of the things that people have always said, and our history has shown, and Brother Malcolm stated earlier clearly that when you start seeing African people taking on roles and being pushed in front for leadership and going in places that historically we, we have always been denied access to, even talk about even when we look at their social relationship in this country. And European men began to give African men access to European women. These are all signs of the collapse or the collapsing of the system. We saw the last, you know, past eight years they had an African president in the White House. Now they choose the first time um, African women to be a vice president. Given all of this stuff is going on. Isn't this a, a, a sign or a symptom of what Brother Mark was saying? When these conditions come about, when everything is falling, they will give it to the Africans to ask us to save these institutions in this country. Is this a sign of that narrative, Brother Anthony, and the panelists from your position, or is it something else? I'll start off with you. I think it is. Take on this, Brother Anthony. I think it is a sign of that, as uh, Malcolm indicated. And uh, and the thing about it, though, this just didn't start recently. It goes back uh, nearly 50 years uh, because there was a time period, and some of us might be old enough to rem- remember this, that, uh, that, mo- that, that Africans did not have access to political office for the most part. And it was the struggle, uh, it was the struggles of the youth during the 50s and 60s that opened up opportunities for the uh, African petty bourgeoisie uh, to get into elected office. And and once they did, most of them betrayed uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the very people that were responsible for, for, for them getting these positions And that's a consequence Of the fact that we were not Politically organized A lot of Africans That had the resource to do so Went into either the Democratic Or Republican parties And history has, has shown that neither, uh, that, that neither wings of this duopoly 
care about the masses of African people. And that continues to this day. So I think what you're you're seeing also is an intensification of the class struggle inside the African community. Brother Haki? Yeah, that's that's no question about it. You know, one of the things is that, you know, uh, the capitalist um, strategy uh, becomes more um, complex based upon the complex nature um, of struggle. So as struggle becomes more complex in terms of understanding what the issues are, then what happens is that capitalists up their game in terms of making sure, at least creating the perception, uh, you know, that uh, things are, in fact, are going to change and things are changing. So it's merely a, a strategy. And so the thing is that, you know, I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that back in the, uh, back in the time of, uh, of, of Richard Nixon, one of the things he did very, very well is to create this perception by using the media of this notion that, in fact, the situation with African people has fundamentally changed. And so, therefore, you can relax. You don't need any movement. You don't need any, any, any struggles. You don't need anything because, you know, we understand what you're saying. We hear you. And so, therefore, we're changing. Uh, we're implementing change, and you're going to be the beneficiary of that change. But the hard reality was that nothing really changed. See, by creating the perception that things changed, they managed to cool out a whole uh, generation of people in terms of movement uh, because they actually brought it to the notion that based upon what they saw on television, it was real. And so, therefore, uh, they were, they, they, in their minds, they were justified in not engaging in struggle because there was no need to engage in struggle. So clearly they upped their strategy in terms of what it was all about in terms of, you know, how do we best deceive the masses of people in terms of, in terms of maintaining that power. Also, you know, one of the things so when we think about Barack Obama, you know, in terms of being the first African uh, president of the United States, one of the things is very, very interesting. So certainly when, when, when Barack Obama was uh, uh, selected, um, uh, he wasn't elected, he was selected to be president of the United States. And when I say selected, because we understand in terms of the whole process. Remember, when they took Barack Obama and took him to Europe, which is unprecedented, they took him to Europe and said, this guy is running for president of the United States. And all the Europeans were clapping and went, whoa, 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 wow, things are changing. America is, you know, is changing. America is, is, is living up to its creed, blah, 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 blah. All right? It was part of a strategy. So they, they, so they, so they sold, that on, on, sold Barack Obama not just to the country, but to the world at large. And so, therefore, there's no, there was no doubt that he was going to win because that, that was clear in terms of they can do all their power to make sure, by hook or crook, to make sure that he, he comes in power. Now, the thing is that they understood by, you know, elevating Barack Obama to the positions of, of to the office of the president of the United States, they understood that Barack Obama wasn't going to fundamentally change anything. I mean, I'm quite aware of the fact that one of the things that he said that when he was confronted in terms of, you know, some people in Chicago, why he's not progressive like he advocated on the campaign trail, when his position was that, well, listen, if I actually try to implement real positive change, real progressive change, they'll kill me. That's true. They would have killed him. But more importantly, they understood in terms of based upon his history, in terms of what the you know, uh, University of Illinois, in terms of you know, the kind of things that he wrote, even going back to, to Harvard in terms of the kind of papers that he presented, that they were very clear that his politics weren't revolutionary. They weren't progressive at all. And so they were safe to ensure that you know, this guy uh, once you know, obtained the position of president of the United States, that he's not going to rock the boat. And he didn't rock the boat. But what he did do, he was able to pacify lots and lots of people particularly in the African community who will refuse, even though the systematic wrongs that inflict upon African people persist, African people refuse to say anything uh, simply because this man happens to be an African person. It also worked in terms of white America, because white America refused to, refused to critique him and, 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 uh, 
and uh, and 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 and, um, and um, uh, look, you know, actually look at his record and critique him out of fear that if they did such, that it would be perceived as racism. So those people in positions of power were very, very shrewd in terms of elevating Barack Obama to the president of the United States. But more importantly, by elevating him to the president of the United States, the, the ruling class, the elites, the, uh, the, the deep state, as they called it, was much more in a much more uh, better position in terms of actually facilitating you know, all kinds of uh, oppression and immunization of the populace, not only just in the United States, but throughout the world. And so Barack Obama served as a useful cover in terms of making sure that those people behind the scenes where the real power lies, making sure that they were in a position to actually bring about real changes, you know, to sort of um, sort of consolidate their positions of power, not just in the United States, but consolidate power throughout the world. So clearly, uh, yes, you're absolutely correct. So this is the strategies that um, they always employ. So now we come with uh, now we come up to Tamara. What's her name? Um, what is her name? Um, Kamala Harris. Kamala Kamala Harris. Now we come to Kamala Harris. Now, anyone who knows anything about Kamala Harris' record, know this woman is far from being a moderate. I mean, this woman, you know what? I, I really, you know, philosophically, I really don't understand the difference between her and a Republican. I really don't. Uh, when it comes to foreign policy, she's very hawkish. She's very much about in terms of continuation in terms of destruction of the planet for the sole purpose of uh, maintaining imperialist control by Western nations. She's all about that. She supports that wholeheartedly. When it comes to the systematic abuse of African people in American society and in the, in the mass incarceration of African people, irrespective of what they're alleged to have crimes they have committed, uh, she's very much in, in favor in terms of continuing that whole process. In fact, one of the things in terms of when she was in California, one of the things was they tried to actually lessen the prison population. She precipitously fought against any attempt in terms of getting, you know, getting people released from prison, even though the prisons were starkly, over, you know, starkly overcrowded. So they give you some, some some perspective in terms of what she's coming from in terms as as a politician. Uh, also, clearly, you know, when we talk about uh, the Green Deal in terms of the necessity in terms of the revitalizing the economy uh, by actually creating opportunities for people to have jobs, we're talking about true um, true employment. We're not talking about you know this is this is full employment as a capitalist state. We're talking about real full employment where people who want a job actually can get one. She's adamant opposed to that. So the question becomes: So, what the hell kind of Democrat are you? I mean, you, at, at, I mean, on almost basic level, you don't even give lip service to at least trying to employ you these kind of strategies. She's adamant opposed to anything that empowers the masses of people in the society. So clearly, uh, what differentiates differentiate her from from her from Republicans? I, I don't see a difference. It seems to me they're one and the same. So you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa. You know, it's all about a game that's being perpetuated. And what we have to do is we have to read, 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 and read again to make sure that when they attempt to manipulate us in terms of putting people before us, that we understand that history, understand what they're about, and we understand the negative implications, you know, if, in fact, they become the power, and being prepared to do what we have to do in terms of maintaining our longevity in society, despite anything that they may do that uh, tends to empower the system which oppresses us. So clearly, Brother Africa, you're absolutely correct, but this is a part of a broad strategy in terms of uh, – you know, the people in positions of power, that's precisely what they do. It's, it's called game playing, and that's what they do, and they do it, do, do it very, very well. Brother Moses, they say when this country's on the decline, they'll put Africans up front to save it. Why yet on that narrative if this is what's going on today? Well, where there's oppression, there's resistance. So as the country goes down, there is still more resistance because the fascialization process which is taking place is oppressive. And so, you know, we 
we've got to continue to organize and continue to point out the contradictions in in the system and uh, the alternative being socialism. And uh, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden will will go on and uh, and you know it'll be like Barack Obama somewhat. Uh, uh, um, hopefully, maybe we can get relationships back open with Cuba again. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, they, we have to push them as far to the left as we can. Meanwhile, we have to organize for on, uh, independently of them. And uh, this, is, this is this task that we're faced with. Uh, there's no getting around it. There's, there's, we've got a lot of work to do. I'm going to leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Haki, in one of your... Um Narrative earlier in terms of what's going on in your world and community, you talk about the possibility of mass mass um, incarceration, mass murder, this whole question of mass mass genocide against a people. Now, one of the things folks can say for a while, <clears throat> excuse me, is that Donald Trump has taken Billy Pages out of the Hitler page. And it's not unperceivable of, of what he's trying to do would be very similar, resembling what Hitler did in Germany. Your elaboration on that on that narrative. Yeah, there, there, there's no there's no question about that. Um, you know, um, racism uh, pays huge dividends, and certainly one of the things that you, when we look in terms of um, you know uh, U.S. politics. Uh, the question of race is always front and center. And when I go back to you, go back to Lee Atwater in terms of his uh, southern strategy, which is all about you know pitting you know poor white working class people against you know African people, because they understood that in doing so uh, you can keep people at each other's throat. By the, you know, the same token, create a situation where behind the scenes the wealthy people can continue to rip off the system, and that's precisely what they do. And you're right, um, um, this this guy, uh, this this orange man is is the epitome. In terms of uh, you know the the um, the reemergence of uh, the Hitler the Hitler principle, uh, there's no question about it. He plays that he plays that game very very well. But keep in mind, we have to understand that you know this guy came to the power because the people who really determine who becomes president of the United States knew his history, his long history in terms of racism. I mean, his Nazi father. I mean, they knew exactly who he was and what he would do, and so therefore he serves a useful cover in terms of making sure. That uh, you know that you create a situation where poor people continue to fight one another, knowing fully well, you know that all his policies are not geared toward the the empowerment of poor people. But on the contrary, his policies are geared toward ensuring that poor people continue to fight one another. So it's incumbent upon poor people, working people, to understand the nature of the beast. Of course, that's easier said than done. Of course, it's a long history in terms of the success, in terms of when you propagate racism, you know, how easily people are deceived, you know, when you, when you start talking about racism. And so certainly Trump epitomizes, you know, uh, this propensity in terms of using racism for the sole purpose for political gain. And recently, you know, when you talk about, in fact, you know, when we talk about in terms of, uh, I think Brother Anthony was talking about um, the this, this situation with the post office in terms of the game that he's playing, and which is, diametric, which is certainly uh, one of the reasons why he's doing that. Because we talk about mail in votes, and he's talking disproportionately, he's talking about African people, you know, for various reasons who can't get to the polling booths who prefer to ship, send a ballot in via mail. And so, by, by fundamentally dismantling the post office, he makes sure that those votes are not counted. And that's, that's, that's part and parcel 
what Trump is all about. He's, he's all about creating hardship. So as long as he can create the perception that hardship uh, is, 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 a, is, is, is prevalent only among African people, then he can, he, can, he, can, he can pretty much be very successful in terms of doing pretty much what he wants to do because not only is he supported by the masses of, uh, of, 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 of poor white folks who exist in society, but he's all, and more importantly, he's supported by very powerful, uh, you know, uh, white folks in positions of power, you know, who who understands what he's doing and support him wholeheartedly. So I think that, uh, you know, so when we talk about mass incarceration, I think one thing you understand is that it's not outside, it's not outside the the um, scheme of things in terms of that coming to fruition, because one of the things you got to understand, brother Africa, when you talk about a system that systematically uh, in, 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 uh, empowers or gives large sums of wealth to one-tenth or 1% of the population, certainly the top 1% of the population who have all the wealth, it has a very negative impact in terms of the overall economy. In essence, what you're doing you know, exponentially is you're creating increasingly a number of people who have no hope. You know, earlier, you know, I talked about the fact that when you talk about in terms of states, the federal government's responsibility to the states, now, one of the things historically the federal government's always done is they had revenue sharing to make sure the states had what they need in terms of making sure revival is populist. Well, during the time of Richard Nixon back in 1971, the states say, well, no, 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 we're going to change that. We're going to change that formula. We're no longer going to give revenue sharing. What we're going to do is give them block grants. So we give them less money to, do, to, to, to address more social problems. And so the bottom line is that in doing that, what they, what they really were doing was they wanted to fundamentally um, – um, re, uh, they want to fundamentally uh, create a situation where more and more money would be put in the hands, you know, of wealthy people. So by cutting money, so cutting money to the states, then in fact, what you did, you created more opportunity, more, or, well, certainly more opportunity for the wealth to be put in the hands of wealthy people. And so when I put that money in the hands of wealthy people, then you do a real disservice to the overall economy. But because of the capitalist society, the overall economy or the or the or the, the, the situation as it confronts the state is not a concern of the capitalist class. They're concerned with their with their bottom line, and that's all they're concerned with. And so, therefore, so this, so so we so we talk about this federal government in terms of re- resistance uh, to provide you know, necessary funds for the states speaks violence in terms of just how just how just how unimportant the masses of people are to the overall workings of this of this of this of this government. So understanding that, you know, when you have these large number of people who don't have any access to jobs, who don't have access to money, who don't have access to education, have all access to public affordable housing, when you have a situation like that, inevitably you got to ask yourself, as a person in a position of power, you got to ask yourself, what do you do to all of these people you don't need? As far as as far as the power is concerned, all these people's existence are superfluous. And make no mistake about it, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> it's not just it's not just African people that they're talking about. They're also talking about poor white folks. Poor Latin folks, poor Asian folks, uh, poor folks across the board. So let's have, let's be very clear on that point. So nobody should deceive themselves to believing that you know that any kind of injust, any kind of systematic injustice only affects African people. That's not the case at all. So clearly, you know, uh, you, you're right. So they, so the the ruling class is, is locked between a rock and a hard place. It has no other choice. In order for it to maintain this longevity or the possibility of maintaining longevity, it has to in turn large number of people. All the people without jobs, without hope, without a future, if you allow them to exist, then they create a very difficult situation uh, for the system at, at large. Uh, there's a certain amount of inertia that exists with systems, and with systems don't want to change. And so when you have all these people essentially challenging that system, then the ruling class got no other choice but to come down on you, come down on your heart. And so when we talk about the mass incarceration, we talk about you know, 800, 
800 uh, internment camps exist in America. Keep in mind that once they build those internment camps, you understand that at some point they will be filled. That's just a, that's just a historical fact. That's a historical truth. So none of us should be surprised at the point where they decide they're just unilaterally, you know, rounding up people, you know, because you're quote unquote perceived as quote unquote a terrorist because of something that you said or something that you've done. Uh, so nobody should be surprised that this kind of um, mass internment are uh, locking up lots and lots of people. It's, it's, it's something that's part of the course. Uh, they're still getting around that. This is history, and just like any just like any imperialist power, you know, that seeks to hold on to its power. When that power is threatened, they do whatever they have to do in terms of survival. And if that means locking up a large number of citizens, that's what they do. So nobody should be surprised when you look at the kind of hopelessness, the kind of despair, the unemployment, the homelessness that exists in society, that the, those missions of power don't understand that, that those 800 camps uh, uh, that are currently in place uh, uh, are extremely valuable in terms of, in, at least in their mind, in terms of perpetuating uh, um, you know, some longevity for the ruling class. So nobody, sh- somebody should be deceiving himself and believing that it's not going to happen in America. Of course it's going to happen in America. We understand that. The only thing we say is that in terms of organizing, we try to minimize the number of people who are, fished, who are uh, you know, um, uh, who are actually impacted, uh, you, know, you know, by, you know, government policies when it comes to locking up a large number of people. But we're not naive. We're not. We're not naive. We're not stupid. We're not saying that it's not going to happen in America. Of course, we know it's going to happen in America. But we just want to minimize those numbers, those casualties, by organization. And that's why, you know, I, we keep on talking about the importance of organization and why we must have organization in the African community. Brother Moses, you use the term Trump being Trump. Can you give us some idea what you mean by that when you say Trump being Trump? Trump is a fascist, and uh, the goal of fascism is to destroy socialism and any progressive democracy or communism, anything along those lines. Um, he knows who his enemy is. He, he, he said in, in no uncertain terms that progressives and, and were, were the problem. And so, you know, he continues to, to try to do everything he can to sabotage democracy the dem- and democratic processes processes which have been fought for for and gained um and he's he's reversing all the all the uh, gains and that's trump thank you and on that note you're listening to africa on the move we're going to take a revolutionary cultural break and when we come back we're going to deal with our theme for today which is five three methods of eliminating they wouldn't know you listen to Africa on the moon. When we come back, we will discuss the first article from IntelliHub titled Dr. Fawcy, Bill Gates, Others Profiteering from World Scale Respiratory Illness Racketeering Scheme. We will ask our brother Anthony to lead it on in terms of talking about some of the methods that are being used to rip off this so-called pandemic and rip off the masses of the people of the world. Again, let's take this revolutionary culture break, and we'll be back with the discussion, and we invite you to join us.
Babylon Quite illegal You're in a Milan Dig out me go In a Milan Digging out me pearl In a Milan Dig out me diamond He a go fight, 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 fight against apartheid
information obtained by an telehub reveals that Dr. Anthony Fauci is listed on the board of directors of the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, GPMB, and appears to be involved in a mammoth worldwide racketeering network scheme in which a prefabricated and deliberately contrived health crisis 
has been used as a means to lock down and suppress human activity worldwide while allowing the perpetrators of the dastardly, multifaceted, and multi-pronged agenda to loot the proverbial coffers of the people and government simultaneously paving the way for the new world order dystopian police state. In other, in other words, what I inter, uh, you know interpret that to mean is that this this board, which consists of um, the uh, 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 political leadership of these various uh, health organizations, is trying to create uh, a, a new world order dominated by imperialism. Uh, to, uh, you know, suppress people's resistance by suppressing their activity. And, uh, and uh, you know, there's, uh, there, there's signs of it everywhere, particularly inside the U.S., where, uh, where, 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 you know, where people are required to, to wear masks while in public. And uh, and uh, you know and there there are all kinds of restrictions on people's ability to assemble, and that stifles not only uh, rec- uh, you know recreational activity that's the most obvious but also even political activity, and uh, so it seems like uh, you know it's an elaborate scheme. In which you know some of the uh, uh, you know uh, you know the, the the members of the ruling class make profits off us, off of, and so uh, this um, I would uh, I would include that this is another mechanism for trying to maintain imperialism. Okay, you know, brother, I can you one of the things also raised in this article we talk about who are the people. It talk about the the GPMB is comprised of experts from non government organizations, academic institutions, national governments, and multilateral agencies, including the World Health Organization and the World Bank Group, respectively. The board maintain main purpose. In itself is to urge particular act, political action and multilateral, multilateral agency. What is your surprise in terms of to make up this group, Brother Hackey? And what did you draw from this article? Yeah, well, you know, Brother Africa, one of the things is when, when they start, you know, um, banding about that, 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 that label of uh, experts. And I'm always suspicious. And in fact, when you look in terms of the, the members that compose this board, I'm very, very suspect. I mean, one of the things, when you talk about something at, uh, you know, um, in terms of um, human health, I'm, I, I fail to understand the relationship to human health and having uh, uh, people in terms of uh, dealing with finance by that board. It, it, to me, it seems to be a disconnect. It seems to me the priority should be on the health. Uh, of, of, of the world's population, and so the question in terms of what 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 does you know the World Bank, for example, bring to the table is for me a suspect. But I'm not surprised. So one of the things that one of the things you, they, one of the things they want to do when they have these kind of boards, they want to give a certain amount of respectability. 
And so we're programmed, we're conditioned to believe that, in fact, that, uh, you know, if you have, if you work for certain uh, certain agencies, then what you say has some kind of, some, some legitimacy. But I think gradually people come to the realization that, you know, simply because you work for a World Health Organization or because you work for a multilateral agency or the World Health Organization, for instance, or part of a university, it doesn't mean that you don't have your biases in terms of what's going on. Certainly, one of the things that are very clear, the kind of allegiance, uh, you know, to power is something I'm very, very concerned about. Now, if, in fact, if you had somebody on there, you know, everyday rank and file, you know, part of these boards, then I would be much more comfortable in terms of accepting their, any type of um, resolutions they might come up with. But the mere fact that all of these people are people of, quote, unquote, esteem, as they say it, or people of power, there's a certain amount of legitimacy in the minds of these people uh, that the state has. And so, therefore, going along, whatever the state does under the guise that it has to be done, they're much more likely to go along with it. So I, for me, I have, they have no credibility with me. But I think one of the things is that, you know, I think that, um, you know, um, the, when the article talks about the fact that he's looking to the um, some maybe some some some, ter- ter- some behind the scenes, really some surreptitious uh, real uh, motive in terms of what's really going on, I agree with him wholeheartedly. Uh, one of the things is that you know, and, you know, I said last week. And one of the things is that when you when you think back to AIDS in terms of you know how AIDS was the was a the, 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 the overriding, overriding theme in terms of in terms of media, and so everything was AIDS, 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 and so we focused on AIDS, 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 and so at the same token, while we focused on AIDS, AIDS. Uh, uh, rights, uh, 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 constitutional and human rights were constantly being violated. The policies were being enacted to ensure that we have less of those rights. And so while we were fixated on AIDS, those missions of power were fixated on creating a, uh, creating a, 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 a narrative or creating a, a policy to ensure that we have less rights. Now, also, you know, brother, after one of the things, you know, uh, you know, aside from AIDS, one of the things, you know, when, when I, when, you know, when you think about, um, you know, when, uh, you know, and I talked about this last week, and when you talk about also, when you think about in terms of um, the not so-called 9/11, and remember, 9/11 was uh, very interesting because remember they told us that the people who did that was actually uh, some Arabs, you know, from the Middle East, uh, even though they didn't say where in the Middle East, but just broadly the Middle East. And so clearly, you know, one one of the interesting things about it, but those people actually carried it out all had all came from, quote unquote, supposedly came from Saudi Arabia. Well, that was never part of the uh, official narrative. So the question becomes, why was that part of the official narrative? So once we get a sense that we were in fact being set up, and so we're being fed this narrative in terms of what was going on, when in fact that narrative has nothing to do with reality. So ultimately, we found out what the real deal in terms of who really brought brought down the World Trade Center. But it doesn't matter because by that point, they are already consolidating the mind of lots of people that were did by the Arabs, and by consolidating that misnotion in the minds of lots lots of people, it created a perception that war was justified, and so therefore the the the, the American the American government was free to execute war throughout the world, the so-called global war on terror. And so, therefore, we again, it was a diversion. We were distracted. So we concentrated on 9-11. We talked about the, the, the terrorists, the, the, the Middle East, the Arab terrorists. We didn't, we, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't stop to think that the real terrorists were right here in America. Now, we fixated on the Arab terrorists because we were told by the media that it's the Arab terrorists who did it. So clearly, we're, so this brings us to COVID-19. And, and, and the whole point is that, again, I, I like to believe that perhaps this is part of a, a, of a distraction, part of a diversion. Because one of the things for the Africa – we look in terms of the, the decline of, 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 of capitalism, including 
something extraordinary has to happen in order for capitalism to survive. And, 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 and so something like COVID-19 is perfect because what you want to do is you want to create the perception, or well, not the perception, you want to certainly want to create the conditions in which, you know, uh, the, um, the, the denial of rights, uh, the kind of um, wholesale brutality, uh, injustice inflicted upon the masses of people is legitimized. And so, therefore, COVID-19 gives you that respectability. Because now what's happening is that all of us are being, uh, we, in fact, we're being, we're being characterized as, 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 as a problem. Because since we all have the potential in terms of current COVID-19, then we are, in fact, part of a much broader problem. And so as far as the government is concerned, is that if you look at something as a problem, then, it's, of course, it has, to be, it has to be remedied. So the question is, how do you remedy this problem in terms of all of these people uh, you know who you see as a problem. So the question becomes, you know, well, listen, uh, you know, one thing we can use COVID nineteen in terms of okay, so we can we can we can characterize these people as part of the problem. So therefore, that give us some some legitimization, some some legitimacy in terms of being able to actually you know pick up people based upon COVID nineteen. I don't have they don't have to reveal in fact the economic reality is that what really is happening is that the system is in decay and what you're trying to do is you're trying to maintain you know imperialism at all costs. And so COVID-19 serves a very useful instrument in terms of making sure, you know, that people don't come to people don't come to realization that a that the economy is in decline, and, and b that that the system is more precarious than, than the, the capitalists want people to, understand, to to believe. So therefore, COVID-19 is very important in terms of as a, as a strategy, in terms of making sure that people don't come to realization that something fundamentally wrong with the system, even though people are very very upset in terms of you know what's going on with the system. The bottom line is, is still this fixation, just like AIDS, just like 9-11, this fixation with COVID-19. So to me, Brother Africa, it seems like a diversion. And keep in mind, one other thing when I talk about diversion, one of the things I hear recently, um, all the glaciers, and, uh, and, and I believe it was in Canada, collapsed. They're gone. Uh, the, the glaciers outside of Bolivia are in the process of melting. They'll be gone in, 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 in a matter of months. Uh, so the ice shells and uh, I forgot what, what country was in Greenland uh, are, 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 are melted away. So when you got this kind of thing going on, we talk about global warming in terms of very real impact it has on human life and on this planet. And the mere fact that we're focused on COVID-19 speaks to values in terms of just how convenient COVID-19 is as a diversion to keep us away from issues that we really should be talking about because we're talking about destruction of the planet, and nobody's talking about that. The mainstream media ain't talking about any of that stuff, not a word about it. We're fixated on COVID-19. Is that by design? I agree with this article. I think it's by design. You know, and the whole and, and what's, what's ironic is that even when the World Health Organization and lead, leading military public, leading medical publications say uh, that COVID, the so-called COVID-19 virus can get in your eyes or through your ears, make uh, the question: Well, if it can get in your eyes or your ears, then why are we wearing masks? So there's more to COVID-19 than we, than, than, we, than we know. Keep in mind also that initially we thought it came from, from they, they, they told us it come from Cuba. I mean, not Cuba, I mean from China. It got Cuba on my mind. It comes from China. They told us it come from China. Well, that, that myth has been debunked. Now people understand it didn't come from China. So if it didn't come from China, so then where did it come from? There's no discussion whatsoever in terms of, you know, uh, you know, uh, what, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, you know, what is the true origin of this of this of this of this virus, or whether this virus is manufactured at all? There's a total blackout in terms of information. So I'm inclined to believe that this COVID-19 is about more than what we than what we've been led to believe, 
that in fact it serves as a convenient diversion in terms of the very real economic problems uh, capitalism has facing. So I think that uh, uh, I agree wholeheartedly with this article. You know that we that we have to be very very concerned in terms of uh, understanding the political implications when we talk about COVID-19. Brother Mo- Moses, Moses well, what did you take from this article? Well, Brother Africa, I wasn't able to read that article. I, it, was, okay. it was on my phone, and uh, I needed to print it out, and I wasn't able to get it printed out. No it was problem. so long. No problem. Um, but uh, I suspect when, when the World Health Organization, I read some of it, and when the World Health and, you know, some of these situations, uh, you have to be on guard because uh, um, we could be uh, victims of some. So, but I, I do have a little bit of faith in policy, though, in, in terms of his integrity and, and uh, his ability to just tell it like it is. And I'm hoping that he won't be co opted by. By these um, figures, uh, figures, and uh, so I, like from his, thank you, brother, brother. Brother, thank you, Moses. But seeing like from his article, he's already not co-opted. But you're part of the master plan, planners. But panelists, in this article, for those that haven't read it, let me just read a few things from this article, and I want y'all to respond to it. It says that. Um, to no surprise, the boy has ties to just about anything and everything that is COVID-19 related, including the reported pandemic itself, which seems to be nothing more than a tool that has been used to further control the populace. In a nutshell, the board works independently of all parties, including its co-conveners, to provide the most frank assessment and recommendations possible. As the agency annual report states, the separation acts as a buffer and provide a degree of legal protection to all those involved. Why would they need a legal protection based on them um, sharing information? Now check this one out. Clever verbiage were in the board latest annual report title a World at Risk annual report on global health preparedness emergencies. Separate the members of the board from their organizations and even separate them from the board itself. This is done by design. So when we talk about methods and methodologies of doing things, panelists, based on what I what, what I've just read, what do y'all draw from this? They are not even speaking and representing anything even though they give you illusion that they are related to many many things, such as institutions, organizations, etc. Why is it so why is it so well structured that if anything go down there will not be none of these institutions that they work for or they're accountable to will be accountable for their independent statements. It sounds like an effort to evade accountability in case, uh, you know, their, uh, you know, their conclusions lead to, um, you know, some sort of legal action down the road. 
And it seems like it, it you know, is designed uh, to give them a way to escape accountability for the decisions and the actions that are taken as a result of those decisions. And, um, you know, I, uh, uh, a, a concern, as uh, Brother Haki was making his points, is that this uh, pandemic is being used as a tool, uh, one, to, uh, to further uh, erode uh what uh you know what uh uh you know the the, the rights our ancestors fought, fought so hard uh you, you know to gain for us in terms of the ability uh to protest to organize and to raise questions regarding the societies we live under and uh and uh and uh that and as you indicated brother africa that's being that 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 that's being completely overlooked uh no one is talking about uh the other things that are going on in the world like uh you know climate change and uh the the increased imp- uh, uh oppression of uh, uh of uh the, the poor people in the world, including Africans and uh, other oppressed people around the world, uh, either because of economic status or because the the lack of the, of control of their homeland, and that should be a very a very serious concern to everybody. Okay, thank you, Anthony. Haki, response? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting, Brother Africa, because they say the board works independently of all parties, which means that there is a board in, in, in conjunction, in addition to the people that they talk about that participate in this board, there is a board that exists. So the other uh, agencies that participate with this board may contribute in terms of ideas, but the board ultimately speaks for itself. And so what other people have to say really has no no real bearing because the board is going to ultimately determine what information gets leaked. So it seems to me that this is contradictory. So on one hand, I mean, how the hell do you say, you know, that uh, we take all all ideas into consideration to create a report and then turn around and say that the board is independent? So this is a double talk. So this is, this is why, you know, uh, you know critique uh, is so important in terms, of, in terms of, you know, understanding a lot of these documents. Because when you read this stuff, if you don't read it carefully, you you would tend to believe something that's not necessarily there. And so when you stop and actually read this thing and actually think about what they're saying, then it's contradictory. And the question is, why is it contradictory? Because I suspect uh, one of the reasons why they, they, you know, I suspect it's contradictory because, you know, when they talk about uh, the, the, the legal, you know, avoiding legal responsibility, I suspect that a lot of the stuff that's going on with respect to the board is, is, is not, it has is not legal. It's questionable in terms of legality, and I suspect that the information they put out may be maybe fallacious, uh, and so therefore they're afraid that at some point maybe someone may come back at them in terms of the information they they put out and seek to sue them. And so clearly, so what they're doing, they they created the, this 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 uh, this, uh, this, um, this 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 uh, strategy in terms of you know how this board is structured to avoid the legalities. So it's interesting to me that they do all that. So why would you go through all of that? If you're talking about something as simplistic, something as simple as, you know, COVID-19, 
then, then so why are you creating a, a era of a, a era of, of, of secrecy? I mean, why would you why would you why would you even do that? That that doesn't make sense. Because supposedly this COVID nineteen is what we already I mean we've been information we've been receiving for a long time now. And so therefore conceivably what could you possibly say that's different than what we already been told, you know, uh uh you know, over and over and over again by the medium. So so see to me, brother African something is something is amiss there. Something is clearly wrong in terms of, you know, this this board. And it's going to take a lot more digging in terms of finding out what this board is really all about. And at some point, you know, the information will will come up come up in terms of what the board is really all about. But clearly, just just reading this this, this particular page, I mean, clearly, uh, you know, uh, the board's legitimacy is suspect. In fact, perhaps the kind of work that they're doing uh, doesn't serve the interests of the union. But perhaps they, what they're doing serves the interests of those positions of power. So, I, I so for me, brother Africa. No, that makes any sense. All right, on that note, what we're going to do here is we're going to take another um, roughly a culture break, and when we come back, Brother Hackey will leave us off as we discuss this interesting article. We'll be talking about methods of eliminating. They wouldn't know. It's an article titled, States Have Authority to Find a Jail People Who Refuse Corona Vaccine, Authority Says. Let me just read you a little subtext before we go on and break, and when we come back, we'll discuss this. It's a legal president takes back to 1905. As drug makers race to develop a vaccine against coronas, several legal questions are emerging. Could the government require people get it? Could the government require people to get medicines from these companies just because they produce it. We will have that discussion when we return. This is Africa on the Moon. Passport Rev. Malcolm on Twitter featuring Napoleon the Legend. What if Martin had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. It wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did its way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they paying me. Seemed like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was the mystery. Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler, trying to be a people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree, and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue in silence, or forever be our own down. All I want to say is that we're giving it away. Soul ain't for sale, and the devil is a fake. Argue with the silence, but don't let it seal our fate. Hide behind doors, but don't ever show our face. Cause if mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter. It'd be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause if mom had Twitter, then Malcolm had Twitter. It'd be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going?
Sometimes the key to life you looking for be right in front of you. Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right, your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic. Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. I want to get high today. Who got five on my little bundle of temporary? Man, I want to live long enough to be legendary. Your statistics said by now that I'm going to be dead and buried. But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already. And I'm march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose. Two different tribes and we fighting the same person. Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us. Cosmic companionship sustained me after my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. Back everyone back to Africa on the move. When we left before the break, we said we have a really interesting article that really typifies these methods of eliminating people. And these are done in a way where you will very rarely know or even even think about because many times rules are on books hundreds of years ago that people are not aware of, but when it comes very convenient for certain interests, people will find them and they will use them. So let's discuss this article that titled States Have Authority to Find or Jail People Who Refuse Coronavirus, Attorney Said. It said the legal presidents date back to 1905 as drug maker race to develop a vaccine against the coronavirus Several legal questions are emerging. Could the government require people to get it? It's, it was posted on August the 7th, and was by Drake. I'm not quite pronounced the last name. Star. 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 Okay, that's S T A A H L. For those who want to look up the document, please do that, because there's many fundamental issues we think is germane to um, all the communities around, around the U.S. as relates to how the government may proceed. It states that drug makers race to develop a vaccine against the coronavirus. Several legal questions are emerging. Could the government require people to get it? Could people who refuse to roll up their sleeves get banned from stores or lose their jobs? The short answer is yes, according to 
Dr. Fox, a law professor and the director of the Center for Health Law Policy of Bioethics at the University of San Diego. States can compel vaccinations in more or less intrusive ways, he said in the interview. They can limit access to schools or services or jobs if people don't get vaccinated. They can force them to pay fine or even lock them up. We'll stop right there, Brother Haki, your response to those possibilities. What you make of this? Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know, one of the things, Brother Africa, that seems to be a bit of a conflict here in terms of, you know, this this plan. Uh, because one of the things is that if, in fact, the mask supposedly protect you from COVID-19, then why would you need the vaccine? It seems to me that uh, on a very basic level, that if you got to, if you should have a choice. Uh, in particular, either take the vaccine or keep wearing a mask. That those should be your choices. But the mere fact that they talk about mandating that the states have a right to mandate you wear them, it raises a, a very, very serious, for me, it raises a red flag. Uh, one of the things, Brother Africa, when we talk about the vaccine for flu, now the vaccine for flu is only 50% effective, so it doesn't have efficacy rate that's that, that, that high. So what is it about this COVID-19 uh, uh, and, uh, um, uh, uh, vaccine that's going, to, uh, that's going to be 100% effective? There's nothing in terms of history of vaccines suggests that uh, any vaccine that ever been created was 100% effective. Not certainly not not in the last in the last 20 years. So I'm 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 sort of so so to me it doesn't make a lot of sense. But the mere fact that they can mandate that. So one of the things we've been talking about, you know, you know, throughout the night, brother Africa, we're talking about the fact in terms of the ever increasing power of the state. And so one of the things that if the state could could consolidate uh, its power and actually mandate that you take something that you don't want to take, then was certainly one would think we can reason that uh, the state has almost achieved precisely what it wants to achieve, and that is mainly absolute control, absolute mastery over the lives of people. And that is something that we cannot afford to, to give uh, to the state, uh, simply, in the, particularly in the time of declining economies, you know, uh, you know so much injustice and so much, uh, so much suffering. So the mere fact that they're talking about is justified in terms of states being able to do that um, speaks volumes. It seems to me, you know, when you talk about a country that values itself in terms of individual freedoms, then what is individual about subjecting people to taking a vaccine shot? As an individual, as an individual, uh, uh, as an individual, shouldn't you have the right to determine for yourself whether or not you want to take that vaccine? You know, I'm all, you know, one of the things, that, and I said it's not conclude, brother, because one of the things I'm very much concerned about is that when the sister, uh, when she left, I wish I could think of her name, but anyway, when she left, she was a do- medical doctor, and she went to Panama. She moved to Panama. You know, uh, she said she was not coming back to the United States, never again. She warned people, please, she said, do not take these vaccines they're going to give you because they're going to weaken your immune system, make you subjective, make it, make you uh, subjective. I'm not, well, well Increase your, uh, your uh, the probabilities that uh, you you become open for other kinds of other kinds of infections, and she advised against people taking those vaccines. So one of the things that resonated in my mind is that I keep I see, keep seeing her face. I keep hearing her say those words in terms of be very careful. And one thing is when they talk about mandating, you know, this this this, this, this vaccine for COVID nineteen, even though they haven't even established, uh, you know, that uh, is in fact is effective. 
or that, uh, you know, uh, since there have been no tests in terms of his, how his efficacy, the mere fact that you're already talking about something that we have that right to do that, for me, raises red flags. So, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned about that. But I think, you know, uh, you know, one of the things that there's no question about it, when we talk about money, one of the things they do, particularly in places like Virginia, one of the things they do is that they tell you, listen, if you can keep your job, you're going to take this vaccine. That's what they're going to do. And a lot of people won't take it because they have no other recourse because they have to have money to pay their bills. And so they're going to take it. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a situation in which they'll probably say that, well, listen, okay, if you're on a fixed income, listen, if you can't provide proof, you know, that you took it, then we just cut off all funds, uh, you know, for you in terms of, on, in terms of being on a fixed income. So I, clearly, Brother Africa, I think that's going to be the key in terms of compelling people to participate in, you know, in, this, in this, this injection, this, 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 you know, this uh, dissemination of vaccines. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, I think, uh, you know, even, 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 yeah, even understanding reality in terms of just how the kind of coercion that the state may use in terms of compelling people to take it, still we have to stand strong. There has to be some resistance. And uh, so, you know, the thing is that the, at the point where they're talking about actually incarcerating people for not taking it, uh, I think at that point, then that pretty much opens the door to the, the mass incarceration I talked about earlier in terms of the justification for interning large number of people simply because of a national emergency. And clearly, you know, they, the position is that perhaps, you know, by those people in positions of power, if you don't take a vaccine, you, it constitutes a national emergency. And so when you've got enough people who don't take it, uh, that qualifies not only a a, 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 a a national emergency, but but certainly a, a situation which has to be dealt with uh, forthrightly. And so, therefore, my position is that they will probably, uh, at the point that they start arresting people, then we're all pretty much in trouble. But nonetheless, we have to make, we have to continue to resist, even though the reality is that the situation is is, is grim, and uh, certainly um, they have they hold a lot of the cards. But nonetheless, well, we have to resist because the bottom line is that. You know, I think we're in for a real struggle in terms of, you know, our right to, to exist, you know, in a society, because clearly the capitalist position is that no one has a fundamental right to exist. And if that means disseminating COVID-19 vaccine and weakening the system, then so be it, because the less people that are around, as a result, reduce immune, compromise immune systems, and the better for those people in positions of power. So I'm very concerned about in terms of the fundamental uh, 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 illegality in my mind that exists with respect to the so-called uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccine. Mm-hmm. Yes, I have, a few, I have a few concerns. One, uh, in, term, in terms of mass incarceration, that already exists in the U.S. The U.S., even though I think it has something like 5% of the world's population, has the world's uh, has has more people in prison than any other country in the world, and that includes countries that have much greater populations than the U.S. So that uh, that's our, that already exists here. I think uh, you know uh, the question uh, you know that people have to ask themselves is uh, how much it, how much is more intense does it have to get? Before we realize that we have to be organized, we have to belong to an organization because uh, individually you don't have to stand a chance, as Aki alluded to, because there's so many pressures to bear on you. And I recall reading an article in um, 
in which uh, Melinda uh, Melinda Gates was advocating, uh, you know, a, 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 a COVID nineteen vaccine and targeting the African population first. Uh, you know, uh, you, you know, throughout the world. So this is a very dangerous uh, situation we find ourselves in. And, um, you know, the legal president and um, and the thing about it, though, they seem that, uh, you know, people are in such a panic that they're trying to fast track, you know, the development process for vaccines because it normally takes about two years from what I read to develop a, a vaccine against any illness. And uh, and the media puts a lot of emphasis on vaccination, but there's very little talk about uh, uh, talk about prevention. How do you prevent, uh, you know, fr- uh, you know, from uh, uh, you know from uh, uh, prevent getting COVID nineteen in the first place? And uh, those are some concerns I have, you know based upon what I read in this article and some stuff I've read elsewhere. Brother Moses, you can jump in anytime you want to if you just want to respond. Feel free. Um in terms of this article in terms of this article, um, panelists, I'd just like to get your feedback on the method of how they're gonna sell the justification for this. And their justification is Given the history of this country and given the history of African people in this country and other underserved communities, their simple justification is that the courts have found that when medical necessity requires it, the public health outweighs the individual rights and liberties at stake. Their response to that rationale. Yeah. Well, I, that is that is the rationale, Brother Africa. That's the rationale. They're saying that the uh, they're saying that uh, the, the the rights, you know, uh, of the citizenry uh, outweighs the individual rights of the citizen. So clearly, that's what they say. It's very it's, it's contradictory. It's clearly, when we talk about uh, you know a society like America, particularly, we talk about the individual rights. So clearly, is 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 contradictory in terms of you know, you know the stand normally uh, politicians take. With respect to to individual rights, uh, but clearly, uh, you know. But I got to tell you about that. One of my concerns is that you know one of the things you know I, I I think that you know when it comes to the African community, one of the things we talk about this 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 um, disproportionate uh, tendency of Africans to come down with COVID nineteen because of the various um, social injustices Africans historically have have been inflicted with. When you think about the impact in terms of COVID-19 on on, on the uh, on African on African death rates, then clearly one of the things I, I can imagine them would, they would say is that African people definitely going to have to take this virus because you represent more of a fundamental threat in terms of dissemination or spread of COVID-19 mm-hmm. than others. I'm very concerned very concerned about that, and so I, I was I was I was I would suspect that in the future what's going to happen. Is that they're going to they're going to focus on the African community, and if they do focus on the African community in terms of you know injecting us with this, this vaccine, I, then I'm, I'm I become really concerned in terms of what is really behind this. So anytime they single us out, you know, for something, then there's also a much much uh, um, uh, 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 reprehensive uh, motive uh, 
in terms of why they're doing what they're doing. So uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting, Brother Africa. So I think that, you know, just in terms of, you know, the, um, you know, when you talk about the uh, Civil Rights Act, it seems to me that, you know, anytime you can obfuscate your right, you know, in terms of your religious rights, in terms of the live the way your, your religion dictates, anytime that can be obfuscated by the state, I think that we're in real trouble. I think we're in real, 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 real trouble. So essentially what they're saying, this article is saying that regardless, you know, of all inherent kinds of rights that exist, constitutional rights or human rights, that you have no real rights after all. And so I'm very much concerned in terms of the implications of that, and I think we all should be. Brother Anthony, this argument of the general well-being of the general public health versus the individual interest, do you buy into that? Yeah, well, 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 it's, this well, it seems like according to what this uh, lawyer is saying is the fact that that um and this is uh something I, I'm I'm concerned. It says that um that the US could have a patchwork of different vaccine requirements in different states. And that states should that explore vaccine requirements only do so if the vaccine is widely and readily available. Otherwise, you create an underclass of people who are less safe and without access to basic means of society. So, uh, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, uh, uh, this is a very uh, dangerous situation. And um, and I think uh, Africans and the indigenous people have been victimized. And those who are incarcerated generally have uh, been victimized by the fact that the U.S. does not have a uniform response to this pandemic. And uh, it has um, and, and, and it has made matters worse for the masses of people inside the U.S. because of that. It seems like we are a worldwide guinea pig Different, different, creating tests. See, like these tests are creating different hypotheses and results, which call for different vaccines. No one knows anything, but they want the Africans to be the first ones to try all of these vaccines. Have we mm-hmm. seen this story before? Have we been down this road before? Is, is there something wrong yes. with that common sense? Why we shouldn't resist that? It's a form, seem like a form of biological warfare. That's what it seemed like to me, panelists. Being in a stage of form of biological warfare, but they're using different methods and very sophisticated in terms of how they're planning it. So, uh, do right, you're correct, Brother Africa. I think, in, in, uh, 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 you know, it's definitely a case of biological warfare, and I think the reason why we suffer from these various uh, illnesses disproportionately is because of our lack of a- uh, access to adequate health care, which seems to be a worldwide phenomenon, except in those societies that are struggling to build socialism, such as Venezuela and Cuba. Yeah, brother Alfred, but you know, you you know, we can't you know we can't preclude you know uh, that 
this is this is this is part of a grand strategy. Uh, you know, one of the things when we talk about the, the tenets of capitalism, when we talk about you know profit at all costs, then people can understand precisely what we're saying. We're saying to you that nothing matters. Human life itself doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is money, money and power. That's all that matters. If money and power are the only two uh, variables that have any meaning in life, then what? Then what do they care about in terms of you know uh, injecting you with 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 a, with a vaccine that may be harmful to you? No skin off their back. Uh, in fact, if you die, that's a plus. Because you know, as far as they're concerned, that's one less person you know uh, you know assuming resources that belongs to us. So you know, so we got to understand the, the insanity of this, this system, and this is this is this is why, you know, uh, you know, when, when you talk about you know how we how we going down this road before, yeah, we we have we we're, we're going down this road before where they, they use us as guinea pigs. So at what point do we begin to realize that? Oh hell no, no 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 no, not this time. You're not going. No 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 no, not this time. You know, but it's, but unfortunately, it's it's a very individual decision. You know, because like as I alluded to earlier, one of the things is that you know I understand that one of the things they're going to do, they're going to tell them, listen, you want to keep your job, then you're going to take this because if you don't take it, you're out of here. That in and of itself is enough to compel people to take that that vaccine. So, but it's a very it's a very it's a, it's a very difficult, very uh, precarious situation that, that African people are going to find themselves in, because on one hand. You know, in terms of the system's longevity, it has to do something in terms of in, in terms of making it possible for it to 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 prevail. Now, if you got a situation where African people historically have always stood up for for justice, always stood up for that which is right, always stood up for you know um, for the weakest among us, and you got a people who have that history. Of course, those people in positions of power, of course, the ruling class see you and don't see you in a positive light. It's seen a very negative light because of a very negative light because of potential in terms of getting in the way in terms of uh, filing up their plans, you know, in terms of you know continue world continuation uh, world domination continuance. So you know, so yeah, you're right, brother Africa. You just got to be very concerned in terms of this and understand, you know, that there's a long history in terms of you know using using vaccines, you know, on African people. In the book Acres of Skin, I mean, clearly. You know, uh, you know, um, the most vulnerable population is the prison, prison population. Of course, one of the things they, without hesitation, were to inject those guys with all guys and women, men and women, with all kind, with all kind of virus, not viruses, yeah, yeah viruses, all kind of um, viruses, for the sole purpose of watching to see how they how they impact uh, uh, the, the, the 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 inmates' health. So. You know, this is so. This is this is crazy, brother Africa. So you know, so nobody should discount anything, in terms of certainly nobody should preclude uh, the vicious nature, you know, of of, of 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 capitalism in terms of the ability to inflict pain and harm on people, because people, after all, it's just a commodity as far as capitalism is concerned, you know. And so therefore, we got to be very concerned in terms of what they do, and understand, you know, that when when they when they tell you to take this virus, understand, you know, if you take it. You know, and all that I can say is that you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, just, just, you know, just, you know, just try to maintain to, to the, the best, the best that you can. Uh, you know, and monitor your, you know, your vitals and, and, and monitor your behavior. I mean, your, your, your health and do all those kind of things in terms of, you know, uh, you know, to the extent possible, stay on top of, you know, uh, any kind of, uh, any kind of health that may be declining as a result of taking that virus, and be able to communicate. You know that, uh, in fact, uh, you know this this this, this vaccine 
uh, has contributed to the problems that you're face, that you're that you're facing. So it's a very difficult situation all the way around, you know. But one thing is clear about Africa: there's a long history in terms of you know uh, uh, you know using vaccines for the sole purpose of study. And the sad part about all of those who will be forced to take it is that they will always have a legal loophole in which the state will say nothing is 100% guaranteed. And so if any ill effects come from it, probably most of our people will not be able to go to the hospital because we don't have no kind of medical insurance coverage. And that's the situation we find ourselves in. Boy, panelists, let's move on to one more article for tonight as relates to our theme, Methods of Illuminating. They wouldn't know. You know, you would think at this point in time, you really would think at this point in time, giving a having birth inside the U.S. today, inside the U.S. today at these hospitals, if you're in good health, what have you. It would just be a natural phenomenon. Everything would come out okay. Well, unfortunately, there are some lessons to be learned in this particular story. We encourage our audience to check out this article from the Rolling Stone on July 9th, 2020. It's dated, Death of Shaisha Washington, Pregnant, 26-Year-Old Black Woman, Highlight Devastating Trend. What is a devastating trend? Again, it's something peculiar to us. When we go in the hospital nice and healthy, we come out with no, no, with no, we not, we come out without producing any kind of birth. We lose our children. Sometimes we even lose our lives. And this is a case from Sister um, Asia, Sha Asia Washington. She went to the hospital up in New York in good health. She was trying to talk to the doctor, tell her some things about her body personally. They refused to listen to it. But for some reason or another, everything was fine. But when she began to go to her birth, she ended up losing, losing not only she ended up dying while trying to give birth. Brother Anthony, what do you take from this article? Uh, the fact that... Um that uh, that Shaisha was uh, a victim of uh, negligence. She was given uh, the drug she was given to induce labor uh, was um, was an epidural, and um, you know, and uh, and uh, she had she had a side effect from it, which, which killed her. Her daughter survived. But uh, but she died in the process of giving childbirth, and um, and uh, let's see. And uh, the article uh, says that that Africans are less likely to be believed either in recognizing their own symptoms or in explaining to the healthcare systems what their symptoms are, and they don't receive the care they need. And, um, you know, and the thing about it, though, and the trend is that a lot of uh, a lot of Africans have died given childbirth since 1990. And um, 
and uh this is uh and 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 this is very sad and it speaks to um uh you know again to a a lack of uh, of being organized enough to be able you know to look out for ourselves and um you know lack of access to adequate uh, medical advice and health care and are not enough uh people that understand uh you know the uh uh you, you know the plight of Africans when it comes to our health brother Haki, one of the things we really interested we compared the statistics you got both sets of groups coming in in excellent shape, but for some reason or another, the Africans end up dying using the same technique, the same medicines, et cetera. What can we drop on this? This is another method well, uh, eliminate. <laughs> un- un- unfortunately, there are, there is this bias that exists in the medical profession. Even the medical establishment acknowledges that. Let me just give you two quick statistics in terms of uh, one reason why we have these these school uh, results. Uh, first, um, you know, uh, now 14 percent of second year medical students wrongly believe African people have less sensitive nerve endings than white people. What the hell does that mean? I mean, I mean, let, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm laughing, but it's just, it's just, it's, it's absurd. I mean, it's absurd to say that that what, you, what you're saying that African people are less than people or less than human. The second statistic: forty-seven percent of the time, U.S. physicians underestimate the pain levels of black patients, compared to thirty-three point five percent for white patients. Interesting. You know, I suspect a lot of this has to do with, with athletics. I think one of the things is that you know uh, you know African people in America tend to excel at, athlete, at athletics. It's not because it's an inherent ability; it's that because the traditional opportunities in this society are often closed to African people. So one of the areas in which you can't actually excel is sports. It's only it's the only area in the United States where African people can actually compete fairly, which is sports. And so so we talk about the abundance of African athletes in sports. It's not because of something uh, uh, intuitively uh, about African people that make us, you know, great sports in the great sports athletes. Uh, it has speaks more in terms of sociological issues in terms of, you know, being blocked out of other opportunities. So, and unfortunately, you know, when you, once you internalize racism, you start believing there's other reasons to justify, you know, why there's so many Africans in sports. And so what they're saying is that because we don't feel pain, that we'd be perfect in terms of in terms of athletes. So you know clearly, so this bias that exists, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's very, very real. I remember one time going to the hospital uh, for uh, a kidney stone. You know what I mean? And, uh, and so, you know, it, 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 I mean, listen, I had, I had some serious discussion, man, in terms of just to get some kind of, um, some kind of morphine for the pain because they think that I'm, you know, seeking, you know, drugs, as opposed to understanding that, damn, these stones are killing me. You know, and, and you know, what I'm saying I, I don't, I don't even take drugs. You know what I mean? But they look at you and they make this assumption. So, you know, clearly I had to advocate. You know, if I didn't advocate for that, they never would have gave it to me. They would just let me sit there and suffer, you know, until eventually it passes, you know, and meanwhile, you know, I'm in, I'm in intense pain. So clearly you have these biases that exist in terms of the medical establishment. And, you know, and, and, and I've got a feeling that none of this is going to um, resolve itself until you have more African physicians, you know, in America. 
And one, one of the problems in terms of African physicians in America, since physicians carry such status, there is this institutional racism that exists that, that, is, that, is, that, that ensures that African people don't have access to medical schools. And so that's one of the problems. This is great why Cuba has a medical school, medical training for doctors, because if you've got the aptitude, then you can go to Cuba and study to be, uh, study to be a doctor and you can and, and, and leave there without being heavily indebted. And you can come back and actually serve, you know, serve the people you know, by using your medical skills in terms of actually helping people and not seeing people as a means of end in terms of making profit. But anyway, I think there's biases in Prince of Brother Africa. So I think and certainly one of the hospitals that she went to was Wool Hall in Brooklyn, New York. And let me tell you something. That is one of the worst hospitals, probably certainly one of the worst hospitals in New York, probably one of the worst hospitals on the East Coast. I mean, it's horrible. I mean, it's, I mean, it's horrible. I, I, you know, I, I don't know where they hired their people, but it certainly is one of the worst hospitals in in in, in New York, and so therefore, going there, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, uh, was an error. Uh, most people don't go to Wood Hall Hospital for something like that, uh, you know, they, you know, because they understand how horrible the treatment is in terms of Wood Hall. But I think, the, but but again, this, this 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 bias that exists in the medical field is something that has to be dealt with, and uh, you know, so I don't think anything short of more African physicians. It's going to remedy uh, the situation in terms of the kind of a uh, disparity in terms of uh, uh, deaths between Africans and, and white people. Certainly, the Af- the hospitals um, are in the business of making profits, and um, the situation when you go into the hospital, if you if you go in there and you can't advocate for yourself in terms of what you think you need, et cetera. Uh, and, the, and explain your pains and, and your condition, et cetera, you are, you're in a world of trouble because these doctors make a bunch of assumptions and they operate and they, and they think they they don't question themselves, basically. They just make an assumption and run with it. And uh, so you're in, you're in danger when you go into the hospital if you don't have anybody else there with you or any situation like that. Uh, this, this, this situation, uh, she was, she was given an epidural, and um, evidently it was a bad reaction. Uh, uh, but the, the hospital, you know, is, is question of their competency is, is in is 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 in in question basically. Uh, um, it's an unfortunate situation. Thank you. Pam, you know, statistically. Uh, in terms of the total amount of doctors, or the total amount of doc, medical doctors in the U.S., African people only make up two percent of that sector. Only two percent of all the medical doctors in the United States. So that gave you a sense of the battle that must be waged. So what we're gonna do at this right. point in time? Yeah, what we're gonna do at this point in time? We're gonna ask each one of our panelists to uh, make their final thoughts on today's program, which is part three, Methods Eliminating. They wouldn't know. We'll start out with you, Brother Moses. Give us your final thoughts and summation for tonight. Yes, this has been interesting. Uh, I think, you know, we have to recognize that, uh, um, you know, we need doctors, and uh, Cuba has a, has a good program uh, um, that anyone's interested in being a doctor should to consider, and um, we need we need people who are conscious and uh, dedicated to to saving lives and uh, 
and um you know this is a we have a shortage uh um meanwhile you know the future i think the future is is still bright for for intelligence um winning out this battle against non scientific um to almost religious like um mentality and uh we gotta overcome this thing um the the corbett Covid nineteen is very real, and we have to understand it is very real and accept it is very real. Um, I think some people feel like it's, it's political or something, but uh, this is a very real disease, and we have to take it seriously. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. Next, we go with Brother Haki. Your final thoughts, Brother Haki. Yeah, you know, we, we you know, we talk about the precarious nature of African existence in America and that's very very clear. We talk about uh, you know, you know, states, you know, on average, uh, 75 billion dollars in debt. And it ranges from uh, 152 billion dollars in California over to 800 million dollars in the small state of Wyoming. So clearly the state's ability in terms of providing for citizenry is compromised and that raises some very serious questions in terms of the um the, 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 the future for African people Not just African people but poor people generally But specifically African people Because when you look in terms of social economic indicators All social economic indicators Tend to be downward in terms of you know, African existence And so therefore whether we're talking about you know, you know, Quality jobs, decent housing or, 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 or decent education All of those tend to be Very very negative and so therefore The implication is that you know, given this backdrop, the question is, what are we going to do in terms of being able to overcome a system which is diametrically opposed to African survival? So without organization, without institutions, there's no way possible conceivably to do that. And in fact, one of the things is that when we talk about in, in the age of COVID-19, when we talk about children not going to school, the question is, the, the education still rings true. So we have to have education despite uh, the, 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 despite this, this, this lack of access to education a lot of children are having in the society. So these are kind of questions that our people have to begin to ask themselves. So we, we, we have to help with organizations. We have to ask the hard questions. Uh, we have to engage in struggle, even though it's not easy because we, we are inculcated, in, inculcated to believe a lot of things that, in fact, that are not true. And so, therefore, therefore, it's not easy when people tell you that the things that you believe are not true. It's not very easy to swallow. And so, of course, it's a natural temptation to resist, you know, that what you think is true, come to find out is not true, uh, to, res- to resent anyone who questions, you know, what you believe to be true. So this is a fundamental problem in terms of how human beings behave. But nonetheless, it's a challenge before us. And as a, you know, we're talking about longevity, we're talking about survival in this society, and it's not hyperbole, then we have to seriously take up the question in terms of organization and institutions in terms of our survival. It's own, there's, there's no two ways about it. So people, please, you know, build those institutions. You know, have that, have that, have that discourse. You know, uh, you know, the struggle is real because without that, uh, you know, our, our, our situation is definitely compromised. And having said that, brother Africa, as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix. And having said that, brother Africa, thanks for having me again. And you have a good night. Right, thank you, brother Haki, for your contribution to today's program. And we now will go to brother Anthony. Brother Anthony. Your final thoughts for tonight? My final thought for tonight is that it is critically important that all Africans belong to an organization that is working for our people's liberation. 
One such organization is the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, which people can find out more about by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org, or calling us at 202-246-4896 for more information and to learn more about Pan-Africanism. One Unified Socialist Africa, which is the ultimate solution to all the problems we're facing worldwide. Thanks for having me. And thank you as well, Brother Effie, for your contribution to today's program. All our panelists, listening audience, and supporters, we thank you always. We would just like to remind you that Africa on the Moon is a weekly radio program. It comes on every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. We encourage you to not only listen in, but when you hear the show, take and share it with your network. Our whole objective is to provide information that you can use to help liberate your people and help make a better humanity. We always strive to go forward our backwards novel. This was part three, methods of eliminating. They wouldn't know. One of the things all of these methods of uh, eliminating people is directly related to what one would call to have official status. In other words, to have legal status to act with impunity. So when we think about these so-called legal status and professionals, everything is dialectical. There are positives and negatives. You can take the good aspect of something as well as you can take the same thing and turn it into a negative aspect. It seems to be a movement going on using these various legal entities to find ways to eliminate African people and people of underserved communities. You must do something to stop it. The only way we can stop it, as we have often indicated, into organizations. So we encourage you, please join an organization that is doing something to help alleviate the sufferings of your people and humanity. Until next time, let's remember describe the forward hour, novel and Africa is on the moon.
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed we need a new beginning let us plant the seed plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine Palestine needs her freedom Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.